This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am so excited. We've got the executive producer and writer for Family Guy. For Family Guy, this is a very popular TV show everyone's probably heard of. Yes. But we are talking scripts and all sorts of things with Mark Henteman on the show today. Right. But we're mainly talking about his $90 million in holding. And what's so exciting... Uh, in holdings, I should say. But so, what's so exciting about in Mark, LA, in in LA, and and yep. a little bit in Austin? It sounds like right. But what's really exciting about Mark Henneman is he kind of fell into this, right? Like he was a struggling artist in New York City who was having trouble. You know, he was well, keeping he was, the lights on. He was writing for the Tonight Show. But it, I, no, sorry, the Late Show with David Letterman. Right. Yeah. But even before that, he's he 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 tells a story, so we'll let yeah. him tell it. But it's a it's but a, a fascinating struggling, story. from struggling artist to uh, successful artist, but a successful artist with a massive real estate portfolio. Right. This is a very interesting show. And one thing that we mentioned last week that I've been thinking a lot about: Mark Henteman is one of these guys that clearly charts a path that I think anyone could probably could probably do with a lot of discipline. But over the course of this conversation, you clearly get a sense that Mark is a fairly exceptional guy. He is very exceptional, but he has a way of kind of making his information very accessible, right? And 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 his his trajectory is he's not a he's not necessarily a numbers guy. He's not a guy who grew up with uh, financial literacy the way that a lot of our guests grew up, right? He he's kind of one of these guys that he's he's an artist. Yeah, he's an but artist. You know what I would say to be a writer. 
You have to uh, be disciplined. You have to be disciplined. That's yeah. the thing, right? So I think you take that discipline of every day carving out time to to sit down and, and do what you need to do to get things done. Right. And I think he's probably used that, that discipline uh, in, in real estate yep. to, uh, to very successful ends. It's like my fitness regimen. Yeah, yeah. Your fitness regimen. Speaking of Peter Griffin, you yeah. just you just had you just you were showing me right before I went. Live Wait, am here. I Peter Griffin? Is that why we're? Well, hey, all I got to say is you went to what body comp? Oh, I didn't. Well, even, I've yeah. never even heard of this. Oh yeah, it's okay. So here, well, I'll give you the the Coles notes here, but we basically, hey Cal, guy on, on our team, uh, and I were at. Chirping each other's bodies, uh, just as you, as you would, as you would every morning <laughs> over coffee. Uh, he's 10 years younger than me. Uh, he's in better shape than me, but we both decided we're going to take 12 weeks, a little bit of a competition to, to change, to change our physique. Speaking of changing bit. trajectories. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Coming out of this, uh, feeling, coming out of COVID, feeling a little bit better about, uh, Right. So instead of, so instead of hopping on a scale, you guys go to body comps. No. So we wanted, we couldn't, like, it's tough to do because when you're competing with someone, what do you do? It's like, we can't just do weight loss because I've got more, I've got more weight to lose. You're both fairly thick. Yeah. But anyways, long story short, we were like, here's, here's here's small bodies. Thick (laughs) T-H-I-C-C, right? Uh, we, we, uh, so yeah, we, we both decided that we were going to go to this body comp ca which is it actually measures so they measure not only your your fat but like your bone density and it's some kind of like do they bot- do they, muscles do they do they do muscle them? yeah yeah it turns out i got some of them too um but i had a lot of fat i had uh, a lot of fat and what struck well what struck me was you just showed me you were walking me through it uh, the report i think to, you should do it yeah trying to sell me on it and and <laughs> we got to the, there's like four examples s- four examples of yeah. bodies uh, regular and, humans. <laughs> and then you flip the page to what looks like a donut. <laughs> yeah, it was okay. I don't know if it looks like a donut, more like a pie chart with, uh, <laughs> but that's, uh, that was my body. Yeah. And it, but the worst part is that like when you see your, your, because the way they but do it. Was it was pretty is, small. Like the, fo- the, the, the body. Uh, no, like the body on the page was fairly, fairly small, but you the, said yeah. when you're in the room, you brought it up on the big screen. <laughs> He brought, he brought it up on the big screen. Like, it's like you and a guy, like, that's the only thing about it. He's got some good bedside manner and he's a really, really nice guy, really into the data. But when you're sitting there, just two men that just met each other <laughs> going over your body on the big screen, it is, uh, man, you want to come out motivated if you, uh, if you have any Well, I think about- he shrunk it. It's like when you take on Photoshop, it. you, you mess with the image and it looks yeah. all out of, out of. Whack. It was it was almost like it was uh, I think a portrait photo, and then he turned it into like one of those Instagram square, <laughs> yeah, almost a landscape. <laughs> uh, but anyways, I it, I think I think objects on the on the screen looked fatter than they appear uh, in real life. But I it was it was very depressing, and uh, so what I've come out of this. But this is this is the last thing I'll say about it because it's it's really bad. But. He, I'm glad you, brought, glad you I brought it up for the podcast. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that's really humbling is is you see your bones uh, and then you see kind of like the viscer or sorry, the muscle and then you see the fat and it's almost like overlaid over top. And man, I'm actually a small guy. <laughs> Turns out <laughs> I'm, I'm actually like bone structure wise. 
I'm in fantastic shape. It turns out you're like dainty. Well, no, I know. I'm, I'm, like, I'm a dainty fella. Uh, but Peter was like, so this is like your muscle and everything else. And I was like, wow, like it's crazy. It was like, it's like a normal like sized person. It's like the John Prime song, Hello in There. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, uh, it just looked like, a, yeah, it looks like me standing in a shadow, like a, or like a normal sized man standing in a shadow uh, or a puddle, the way you would draw a puddle around. Uh... <laughs> Anyways, um, bodycomp.ca, yeah. shout out to Peter. I'm going to see <laughs> him. It's in... not a paid sponsorship. Either. No, it's not. I, but no, he, he's awesome though. I think he's super, he's booked up a long, quite a ways away, but I, I think he's always looking for. For people to come and see them. But anyways, we've got, you know what, uh, before we get to our show too, I'm back in 12 weeks. I will be uh, posting it in we'll the show notes. <laughs> we'll have an update. Have an A update. photo of the after photo all. But, uh, but speaking of paid sponsorships. Yes. Uh, Oakwindrealty.com. Oakwind.com. This is our brokerage. Best brokerage in the city, bar none. If you're a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody looking to make a change. A uh, seasoned been agent. been in the business for... Sometime oakwind.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakwind.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. There's a huge incentive, yes. but I think the real incentive is to sit down with uh, some of the best and brightest in the in the business and learn more about Oakwind. It is the best brokerage out there. If you're looking to make a change, definitely head over to oakwind.com slash join, VRP 2020. What else, Matt? Last thing before we get to a phenomenal conversation with Mark Hentemann, we have the Sellers Club. Yes. This is our new club. This is a new club. It's a, it's a hot club in town. <laughs> it's one of the hottest. One of the hottest clubs in town. It is a uh, basically where sellers can get the absolute best resources to get top dollar for your home in the shortest amount of time. And that always takes, as we say on this program, planning. It planning. reminds me of uh, that Abe Lincoln quote. What is it? If I, uh, if somebody gave me four hours to cut down a tree, I'd spend the first three hours sharpening the axe. So this is really what that is. It's 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 a sharpening the axe guide. That's right. A step by step process to get your home ready to yes. list and get top dollar. It's avoid exciting. any sort of objections. You need this list. You want this list. It's an exclusive club, but it's growing quick. Sign up at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And the way to do that, Matt, is just send us an email with Seller Club, Sellers Club in the uh, subject line. We'll get you a copy of Volume 1. There's going to be several volumes this to is, this. Yeah, it's like an encyclopedia. It is. It is. <laughs> That's why we don't know how to use it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, without further ado, let's cut to our interview with executive producer of Family Guy and real estate investor... Quantum Capital Inc., $90 million in Los Angeles, currently held. Mark, Unbelievable. Mark Henneman, this is a great conversation, so enjoy. Enjoy. Okay, so we're here with Mark Henneman. He is the writer and executive producer for Family Guy, and he's also the founder of Quantum Capital Incorporated, currently with around $90 million of holdings in uh, Los Angeles, which is really exciting. So uh, welcome, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much, Mark, for taking the time today. Uh, maybe can, can you start by telling us a, a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I am a writer and producer, as you just uh, introduced me. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been in, in the entertainment business Gosh, I think like since 1997, uh, I'm from Ohio, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, 
and yeah, I got in. I always wanted to be a writer and moved to New York after college and struggled a lot there. You know, obviously maybe it wasn't the smartest thing to move into one of the most expensive cities <laughs> uh, right out of school when I had no money and had debt. Uh, so it was kind of traumatizing um, trying to make ends meet there, but I was still passionate about writing and trying to learn, you know, what, uh, how stories work and comedy works and why it works when it works and why it's bad when it's bad. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was waking up in the middle of the night, panicked over how I was going to pay my rent. And uh, it took me a little, it took me a while, like it takes everyone a while to break in. But I got hired to write for David Letterman in New York. Uh, then I moved out to LA where I joined a new show just starting up called Family Guy. And when I got my first script payments for Family Guy, when it was just starting up, you know, those, the trauma of my destitute days in New York were still fresh. And I didn't have much trust that I would be able to make a career in entertainment. I thought I'd be unemployed for a lot of my career. And I thought I'd be spit out of the business. I don't know. At any, I could be spit out at any time. So I took my first couple script payments, which was about maybe 20,000 a uh, script. And I invested in a duplex. I got a little nudge to do that from a broker who I had met who was telling me, you know, don't put your money towards rent when you could be putting it towards a mortgage. And I was like, are, are you kidding me? You think I want a mortgage, the responsibility of a mortgage? Like I'm, as far as I know, I'm going to be unemployed in two weeks from now <laughs> and I won't be, I won't be working again for a year and a half, but she, she convinced me and she showed me a, a property. Cause I, I, told her, I don't want anything cute. Don't show me any charming houses. I want something rough. That's, that's basically all I want this thing to do is give me financial security, give me a cushion, something that I could fix up. And that will be like a great investment. And to her credit, she found me this, you know, ugly duckling duplex, but it was in a great area and it was 1920s and, uh, and it needed a lot of work, but it had great bones. It had great architecture that I, you know, I decided to jump in and it was pretty terrifying because I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I did it and I figured it out as I went along and I fixed up this duplex and it turned out to be pretty remarkable uh, experience. Uh, you know, it was, it, I didn't have any training going in, but, uh, I tried to embrace it. My tenant was Mike Henry, who does the voice of Cleveland and Herbert in Consuela, if anyone watches uh, the show. And, you know, he made fun of me for being a landlord and I threatened to evict him pretty much every week. But uh, I, I read everything I could about, uh, about real estate and, and embraced it. And it turned out to be a phenomenal investment, you know, not knowing what I was doing. And I sold it for probably about three times what I bought it for. I had leveraged it, you know, with a 10% down payment for a first time buyer. And, you know, my return ended up being like 2000%. I think I made $800,000 gain on a $43,000 down payment. And wow. from that point forward, I was just blown away. I was like, real estate, this is the thing. This is the thing that I have to do <laughs> if I'm going to stay in this business. And I was passionate about it and I enjoyed it. And so I've been doing it ever since. 
and kind of buying, you know, I was buying aggressively through the early, early 2000s, I guess aggressively for me, but every time I made money off of scripts and shows and whatnot, I would, I no longer wanted a fancy car or anything. I just wanted to pump everything in real estate. The next, the, the thought I have is, uh, I wouldn't say we came up, uh, in the same type of creative field as, as yourself, but, um, growing up, I feel like Adam and I both hung out with people that, yeah, it was like real estate wasn't on anyone's radar, presumably, um, with your tenant there, uh, who's a voice actor, it wasn't on a lot of people's radar who you were working with and, and spending time with. Uh, do you think, do you think being like a creative person has helped you in, in your real estate journey? I think so. Yes. I mean, real estate, real estate, it feels like shift. It's shifting to a different part of my brain, but, uh, I, you know, I was a bit of an artist too. I, I, my first job I ever got was a greeting card illustrator and writer. Uh, but, uh, I think I can visualize the potential in rough properties or distressed properties. So I think it helps with my value add. And I just enjoyed the shift from, from spending all day in my head and kind of in the world of abstract ideas. And I enjoyed shifting when I got home, like, okay, this is concrete. I could see it. It, it, you know, has a foundation, you know, it's there. Whereas you second guess yourself all the time as a writer, but yeah, to your point, I didn't know anybody who invested in real estate. It was totally off my radar until I was into it. Can, can we can we talk, Mark, a little bit about um, first of all, maybe what you're buying, and are you buying a mix of property types, or are you do you have a, a particular property that you're investing in? Well, what's interesting is you mentioned you know, that we both are fans of bigger pockets and started listening to that. And I started listening to them maybe in like 2013, 2014. And I had been investing since 2000 and I had, I was in Los Angeles. So all I knew was I had limited funds and I wanted to buy multifamily properties. So I bought the cheapest properties I could find and combined with the best neighborhoods. That was what kind of, uh, brought me success with my first deal sort of inadvertently, but I also kind of knew what an up and coming neighborhood looked like back then, but that became my formula. And I was buying, I was trying to target buying a property in Los Angeles for about 200 to $250 a square foot. And what that, the, the product that that drew me to was 1920s, construction. And so I was buying those in good mar in good areas. And then I started listening to bigger pockets and everyone was saying, you know, don't ever, <laughs> don't ever buy anything pre 1980s. And I had been doing that for 12 or, or 14 years at that point and had nothing but success. So I, I, I kind of, I guess, carved out my own strategy that, that made sense for me. And it, it, was a great strategy. I was buying these buildings pretty much at about half of their replacement cost in Los Angeles. As you probably have heard, it's very restrictive. There's the building codes, the regulations and the permitting is all uh, expensive. So it's a high barrier to entry market. And I was, I was uh, maybe I was a bottom feeder, 
but I was buying the cheapest buildings I could find and I would fix them up. I, you know, big value ads. And I loved bringing out the historic architecture in those buildings. I've always been a fan of historic properties and, you know, the way they were built back then. So it was kind of a passion for me. And I also tried to bring out a little bit of the Hollywood character. You know, I'm not from, I'm not from Hollywood or LA, came from Ohio. So when I was buying these big, big buildings and some of them had these like castle like features to them that I thought was cool. I would, you know, do the lobby with these black and white vintage photographs of, of historic Hollywood and historic LA architecture and really bring out that character. And often I'd be tearing up like a 1980s bad linoleum floor. So it was pretty dramatic. You could pretty dramatically change these things and the tenants loved them. And, uh, you know, it was a great formula for me. And that, that's kind of what it was. If, if, if I answered your question adequately. <laughs> yeah. And, and were you, are, are you doing this work yourself, Mark, or are you kind of visualizing, uh, what the building could potentially look like and, and you have a team, uh, a solid team around you? Yes. At this point, I have got a very solid team around me in the beginning. Yeah, I still had a team. I knew that I could never do self-management because I was working a lot on the writing side. So I was looking for good management companies. And I have long relationships with a couple management companies, pretty much one at this point. And then I also found the team around them. I, I had an insurance agent that I went to all the time. I had a loan broker that I went to all the time and I've now done probably 60 to 70 loans with. Um, and uh, yeah, I had my team. I had my uh, unit turn guys. I started to, when I built a big enough portfolio, I went outside the management company and would do turns myself because I could do them cheaper and I could do them faster and cheaper and get more of what I wanted. So I had my go-to guys when a unit would turn, I just call them and say, Hey, go over there and could you, do our thing. So yes, team was important. And, and it sounds like uh, your strategy has been somewhat unique uh, in terms of the people we've talked to. Uh, it doesn't sound like you're, you're looking for cookie cutter product at all. It sounds like you're, you're looking for kind of uh, more unique uh, buildings, if I understand correctly. Yes. And I think I more target the area, the location, than I do the property itself. I think that's where I start. I usually start by searching like, okay, here's, I'm in LA. LA has probably 80 submarkets to it. It's a big, you know, sprawling city. And there's really hot areas there. You know, there's Santa Monica, there's Beverly Hills, Bel Air and, and all that stuff. And then there's all these transitioning areas. And one of the, the two of the big things that I've taken advantage of in LA is when I got here, Hollywood was a dump. It was, it was where you'd find drug dealers and prostitutes and in real disrepair. And then also downtown LA was, you know, basically skid row. It was like a ghost town. And it, co coincidentally, when I got out here, there were major pushes to renovate and, and, uh, revive Hollywood and also downtown. And there was a lot of economic incentives to do so. And there was these like coalitions of major businesses that were 
had agreed to sink like $5 billion into both of those areas. And it was matched by like city and government funds. So I knew those two areas were going to explode. And that's where I was, I was living kind of in that general area. So I was always looking for, all right, where is the the most, and you saw all the hipsters and, and young people moving there, professionals, they all wanted to be there. And so I looked for those hot neighborhoods and then the ones that were hot and had gotten priced up, I looked in the periphery of those that area so I can get the you know the lower priced property acquisitions that that I knew you know as people got priced out of the really prime markets they'd want to live as close as possible and I would be you know I'd be there ahead of them buying buying stuff and fixing it up that's that's uh that's that's really sound advice and we we actually we've talked a lot about that on our show kind of looking for the next uh the next area and follow the hipsters and drug dealers and prostitutes um, and writers <laughs> and, and writers <laughs> uh, the the ones working their way to to success i guess um, um yeah so i i kind of want to unpack that a little bit so um it, first of all i guess in terms of your strategy are you are you renovating and holding these properties then because i mean you do have around 90 million dollars in holdings right now um, in the LA area, or, or so, are these do they become revenue properties? Or are you putting them back out onto the market? I put them back out on the market. I from the from day one when I was sitting in that duplex with Mike Henry, uh, I was always looking across the street at the fourplex and thinking like, God, it would be so nice to have four units because that way if one goes vacant, I got three others. And then next to that was like a six unit. And I'd be like, oh, it'd be even better to have a six unit. So I was a, a big believer in economies of scale from day one. So for the first, say, eight years of my investing, my sort of roadmap was to get in with the funds that I have. And I didn't use investors back then. I was using all my own money. I would get into these properties, fix them up, sell them, and go into a larger number, 1031 exchange into larger scale. And I think uh, I was doing that consistently. I think I went from our duplex to a 14 unit that I fixed up. And, uh, you know, I consistently did that. And I was usually able to go from, I think my biggest trade up was I went from a four unit building at Sunset and Vine in kind of prime Hollywood to 36 units in Koreatown, which was not far away, which was that next you know, that next transitioning area. And so I liked that model. And I, I always kind of thought in the back of my head that once I get above 50 units or so uh, per building, maybe I'll settle down and I'll, I'll hold these things long-term. But, you know, I've now been at it 20 years and I'm, I, you know, I, I have uh, 80 units and 70 units and 60 units. And some of them are in Austin, Texas, because I also diversified into Austin, but I'm still I'm still looking to trade those. I'm looking to buy, renovate within the first two or three years. By year three, refinance and maybe hold it for a couple more years and then sell after between years five and seven. It just seems like that makes my money, my investment dollars work hardest because I'm adding the most money when I'm actively renovating them. And once I complete the renovation and it's stabilized, you know, I've kind of done what I need to do 
and I don't need the money. You know, I'm lucky. Luckily, amazingly, I've stayed consistently employed in the entertainment business and it's fun for me. So my real estate is all just like working my investment dollars. And so that's why I do that. This reminds me of Vancouver in a lot of ways that, you know, uh, when you think back over the last 15, 20 years, it's like, wow, there are so many opportunities. Um, but it always feels like looking forward. It's like, okay, where are the, uh, you know, is there anything left? Uh, do you see, like, <laughs> right. how, how do you, how do you go about, uh, choosing markets, uh, today and, and where do you see the opportunities and like, are there still opportunities in LA that you're looking at up, up and coming neighborhoods or is that the reason why you moved to Austin or, and, and are you still buying right now? Uh, good quest. Great questions. Um, so I think there are opportunities in LA and I think one of the reasons that there are opportunities and I think that there will always be opportunities in LA is that, and and I think this is a stat from 1916. I haven't updated this. I should look again, but in 19 or not, not 1916, 2016, there was 3 million parcels in LA County. And, uh, so there's 3 million properties and, there was just so much inventory that at any given time, if you take 3 million properties, I don't know, maybe there's 4% of those are on the market. If that's a reasonable thing to guess. And that's like, that's still in the hundreds of thousands of properties that are available. And because you have such a wide range of age of properties and you know, it go, it's a, it's a, principle that applies to real estate all over, not just LA. But as an investor, you're kind of a venture capitalist, especially if you're a value add investor, you're looking to buy these businesses. And that's what real estate is that you can improve dramatically. And in real estate, we have a advantage over other venture capitalists because most venture capitalists outside of real estate are buying professionally run businesses. Whereas real estate You've got mom and pop owners, you've got dentists and doctors and all kinds of people that are that own these things and haven't maximized the value and don't really actively manage them. So there's I think there's tons of opportunity in L.A., uh, but I did want to diversify after I had a portfolio of 20 some properties in L.A., I knew I wanted a second market. L.A. has earthquakes. You know, I hadn't gotten hit by one and and you know, I think I'm okay, but I did want to diversify my portfolio. So I spent probably two or three years looking at other markets, looking at population growth, job growth. I wanted a tech city. I wanted, uh, you know, wage and income growth. I wanted a diverse economy and I wanted barriers to entry because barriers to entry was one of the main drivers of uh, appreciation in LA. And I zeroed in on a couple locations. Uh, one of them was Salt Lake City and a couple others, but I ended up in Austin and uh, I like Austin a lot. And so I moved there and I now have about 200 units there. And I really like the drivers that underlie that market. And that's, it's been really interesting and fascinating to me to move to a new market. And, you know, I, I think it's going to be fruitful because I picked a market that, you know, there's still jobs pouring into that, that city. And 
you know, as well as uh, new residents. I think there's people moving there at some kind of really startling figure every day. Right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, how, how did you go? Because like one of the challenges for a lot of people looking in other markets is learning that market and feeling like they have a good handle. And then also it's an overwhelming process of kind of looking across, especially the U.S., at so many markets. Like how did you even just start approaching the idea of another market? Sure. I, I figured out like what I wanted to look for and did research on that. And, you know, based on my experience, but also, you know, I kind of looked at all the data and, and yeah, that narrowed it down to uh, a few markets. And uh, ironically, I was looking also on like, could I just Google, you know, what are the best multifamily markets in 2016 when I was starting to look? And strangely, every list of the top 10 markets were different. And there was not a ton of overlap, but a lot of them had, you know, Austin was appearing on a lot of them. Salt Lake city was on a lot of them and, uh, others, Boise, Idaho, the Florida, the Southeast, Charlotte, uh, Nashville. But yeah, so I wanted to, uh, I wanted something that was close by, I guess that was another part of my criteria in a second market was it was some, had to be someplace I could get to easily and you're right when you say it's tough to in daunting to try to invest in a new market far away. And I was talking to brokers in multiple cities, but a lot of them in Austin, I was getting to know all the professionals there and I had been there once or twice and still kind of dragging my feet. I was still a little hesitant, but what happened is um, someone reached out to me just to, to pick my brain. And I usually kind of try to, try to accommodate them if that happens. And, and I was talking to this guy and he seemed very motivated in, and at the end of the conversation, he, I was like, where are you by the way? And he's like, I'm in Austin. I was like, Oh, you know, I, I happen to be interested in the Austin market. So if you want to stay in touch, uh, you know, please do. And if you find something that, you know, maybe I'd be willing to go in on it for you. And that started a partnership and his name is Nick. And he and I, you know, he's become one of my partners on Quantum Capital. And, you know, he's on the ground in Austin. And that gave me the confidence. And he's lived there. So he knew he knew street by street. He knew pocket by pocket. And uh, and we started making a map of Austin. It's like, all right, here's where we want to go. Let's know all the brokers and, and all the, the players and start networking and, and ask them to give us deals. So, so one thing, uh, Mark, that, that seems to, uh, be in, in your life, it seems like you're very busy, right? Like you've, you're writing on, uh, <laughs> on family guy, you're writing, I, I think we were not live when you said you're currently writing a, a script. Um, you're in, you know, you're, you're running quantum, uh, how how do you stay on top of a market? Like, where do you find the time, and and what are your strategies for for staying on top of, I guess, at least two markets here? Yes, I you know, it's hard. I am very busy. Sometimes I feel like I'm too busy, and then I kind of be like, no, I can I can handle this. And it's having good systems, having a good team, is a big part of it that I learn more and more. 
but I wake up, you know, in the morning and I start reading, you know, I read the national real estate investor daily. And, you know, I look, I kind of try to consume economic information. I like, uh, you know, spe- especially now during COVID, it just, uh, just trying to digest and understand, uh, yeah, your, to your question, markets and what's happening in the rental economy and in the greater economy. And, and yeah, that's, that's how I do it is I'm just always trying to stay on top of, uh, yeah, where, where jobs are happening, what's happening with employment, what's happening with rents and the, the, not only the past, you know, recent data, but the projections of what's happening in the future and try to make educated decisions. Having gone through 2008, I know that, you know, real estate encounters downturns and it's not all, it's not always upward charging. So you got to be careful and you got to know how to navigate it. In in thinking about that and and the market shifts, does, does like timing the market play a role in your, in your strategy? Yes, it does. And I'm almost embarrassed to say that because people, you know, the, the general consensus is never don't try to time the market. You hear that all the time. I think I've been doing that since the beginning and that was my just ignorant self. But I thought I mistimed the market when I bought, I bought in 2000 and the market had been charging upwards for three years. So I thought I had made a huge mistake when I bought that first duplex because I overpaid. I think it was listed for like 379,000, like 380. I paid 435 because it was a, there was a bidding war of like 15 other buyers. So I, I was terrified when I bought that first property. I thought the market had run its course and was probably going to go into a recession. But I had the good luck that it continued. I've just been you know, focused on trying to watch where the economy is going when, it, when a market has been chugging upward for a very long time, like it had been in 2019, I get a lot more cautious. And I know having gone through 2000, uh, the 2008 recession, I knew I started sitting on the sidelines in 2006 because I knew the market was overheated. I knew there were these bad loans everywhere and it was going to, it was somehow going to end badly. And I waited until the market dropped and it dropped by 15% in 2017. And I thought, thought now is the time. And I bought a 16 unit building in LA, but I had, I had jumped in a little bit early and the market continued downward. And, uh, you know, fortunately it was a workforce, like a B C class property. And it, it did, it fared the storm of 2008 pretty well, pretty well. I mean, we didn't, we didn't go down in rents and, and we, our occupancies held, but I was also, you know, working full time at, at the time and making good money. And I was like, I am going to watch this market and wait until I want to find the bottom. And I read about it and I, I, my conclusion was I wanted to see two consecutive quarters of GDP growth. And when I saw that, that would be an indicator that we were coming out of the recession. And that occurred in, you know, there was a little bit of a double dip 
it happened in 2011. Then we went down a little bit and then it, it went up for the long term starting in early 2012. And I was lucky to be watching it because I started buying aggressively in 2012 and it served me well. And, and that was me trying to time the market and, you know, maybe it was luck, but I did it. And I think it's not that impossible to time the real estate market because mar- uh, real estate moves at a glacial pace. Unlike, you know, the, the stock market where you could, you could buy or sell with the click of a button. Real estate takes five, four or five months to, to close a deal. And it's, you know, it, it's really hard. So that it just moves slowly. And, and I've found, or at least I like to think I've been able to time it because it moves so slow and you can get ahead of it. Right. Right. Yeah. We talk about that often where uh, it feels like uh, an area is overhyped and in over the next five years, it, it continues to, <laughs> to get hyped, hyped, hyped. And you're like, oh, actually, there's a lot of time here to, to, <laughs> to it's act. It's not too late. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and, you know. Or, sorry, go on. Th- oh, sorry. Just a, th- just a thought on the reverse of that, too, is is because I've, whereas I've been successful and kind of benefited from how slow it, it takes for a market to in, to hit bottom and, and go upward. I've like, for example, that 2008 property, I thought the market had gone down and it did go down by 15%, but it's still, it took a long time for the market to adjust to the real, for the real estate market to adjust to the recession. And I think I'm more inclined to make the mistake of buying prematurely when I think we've hit bottom. And I think that might be happening right now. I think I hear a lot of investors say, oh, real estate has fared pretty well and and multifamily has fared pretty well during this pandemic. You know, we might be out of the woods, but I'm kind of skeptical about that. I think, you know, in the U.S., we've had this stimulus that are all, all these different factors. And I think, uh, I don't think we've seen the worst of it yet. So I'm curious, how, how has, how has, um, COVID-19 and, and the, the, the situation that we're, we're in in 2020 affected your portfolio and, and, uh, it sounds like you're sitting on the sidelines right now and taking a wait and see approach. A little bit. Yes. I keep thinking that I'm not going to do anything, but, I'm always looking at properties and, you know, every, every once in a while, something uh, catches my eye. And I, I think like there's, this has enough of a discount to weather volatility, but yes, I, I am sitting a little bit on the mark uh, on the sidelines. I'm watching carefully my portfolio to answer your question has, has done pretty well, like better than I expected, but it has been impacted I've seen, you know, a, an uptick in delinquencies and vacancies and all the properties are surviving. We're weathering it. Um, but if it continues to go down, you know, it could become more, more challenging. And then at the same time, I'm looking at a property right now that I, I oh, by the way, I just bought two properties. I bought a distressed property and then I brought, bought another property that the rents were pretty low in LA. It was a 22 unit building that uh, I knew there was enough of a cushion that, you know, if rents go down, those rents won't be impacted because they're, 
it's rent controlled and they're below, they're well enough below market. Right. That that doesn't sound like sitting on the sidelines at all. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, no. <laughs> also, I, I just bought two myself, doors. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just bought two, and looking at a, a big a big property in Austin right now. But I'm trying to be very picky and very cautious and ready to walk away. You know, I don't need a deal. Right. That's that's I think emotionally I want to detach myself. Like now is not a time to be, you know, going all out, like wait, watch. And if you find distressed properties that, you know, are an incredible opportunity and you do the math and you put things in place where you can survive upcoming volatility, then, uh, then yeah, I'll, I'll buy if, if it meets those criteria. It's so clear to me, Mark, how passionate you are about real estate, and and I I I know like how active um, you are in the market and kind of always monitoring. What advice do you have for younger people kind of considering getting into the market? Maybe that that um, that writer who's who's got their first gig. Uh, uh, yes, I would tell, and I have told <laughs> lots of writers that are starting out. Like if you get a chunk of money if you get on a show or you sell a script and you get a chunk of money, there's nothing better that you can do with that than to buy a property and ideally buy, buy a house hack, like get into a duplex or a fourplex or a threeplex or even a single family and rent it out. Keep your, keep your expenses rock bottom. You know, if you're in the entertainment business, you know, you got to be ready for any kind of curveballs that your career throws you. So keep your expenses very low. And uh, yeah, there's nothing better than that house hack as your first foray into real estate. It's a chance for you to operate a property. You'll probably live for free, if not immediately, eventually. And yeah, you get the benefit. You get a lot of benefits from it. You get reducing, reducing your own expenses and then investing in something that you can grow, grow wealth from. And build your experience. And and Mark, for those listeners uh, of ours who who are kind of unclear on what house hacking uh, means, can you kind of uh, unpack that a bit? <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I didn't know. I never heard the term house hack until maybe like 2014 or something. But um, house hack is is what I did. It's it's the first property I bought was a duplex. And a house hack is something that you can live in and also rent out. So, so just any kind of property, it could be a single family house where, uh, where you're reducing your, your costs of living and also making income by renting it. And then you have the ability to fix up the property. You could add value to it. And over time, you know, the rents should head upward. And also there's a lot of favorable loans and favorable programs for that first time buyer. Uh, you know, you could put a, lo- a much lower down payment and there's other programs that help you. So I think, I think it's a no brainer. If, if you ask me, what is the best way for a new, new investor to start out? You know, I wouldn't say invest with me. Uh, Cause I want, you know, I want, you to be an investor uh, on, on me, I would tell them to go do it themselves and get that learning experience. 
Absolutely. And we're actually, we're seeing a lot of people now just because of the price points in our marketplace, they're doing that with two bedroom condos now where they're renting out the second bedroom or um, in pre-pandemic days uh, doing Airbnb for the second second bedroom if the building perm- permits, you know. So um, really, really sound advice. Uh, maybe as a, a final question, uh, Mark, we we talk a lot about mindset and kind of just how how people stay like it's it's a a real process finding deals monitoring markets staying on top of things and then also um a lot of people are uh, fall victim to uh you know analysis paralysis when they're when they're monitoring the market and you know a year or two goes by and you and you haven't bought anything so um how has mindset played a role in your investing strategy I think it's I think it's huge. I think mindset I think I learned mindset getting into the entertainment industry and I started being fascinated with mindset even as a kid but you know trying to get into entertainment industry like I kind of learned that if you if you're chasing a big dream you're going to meet big big resistance and, you know, the going's not just going to get tough. It's going to stay tough for a long, long time. And maybe that's the big, the biggest part of it is everyone has passion at the outset and, you know, for a good amount of time, but can you hang in there when you're past the point where you expected to have found success and can you still, still be passionate about it? I think it's developing that mindset of determination and persistence and then on the passion passion side, there's a funny thing about real estate. I think it takes passion, but it also, because it's an investment, it takes being dispassionate. So you should be passionate about your commitment to growing and, and working the process. Be passionate about the process of looking at deals and, and practicing real estate, but be dispassionate about decision-making don't get married or don't get emotional about, oh, I really want that first deal. So I have to have it in the next six months. Or in the reverse of that is don't get scared. Don't get intimidated by it. Um, You just have to have your criteria, define your criteria. I think that will help you overcome analysis paralysis is if you have a strict set of like, all right, I'm looking for a five cap and you know, every market is different. So some people will be like a five cap. Are you crazy? But you know, I would look for my criteria is I look for a five cap, which gives me leverage. I look for $250 a square foot, which tells me I'm buying that asset just on the physical asset. I'm buying it well discounted, uh, compared to everything else out there. And then, you know, check your boxes, you know, box number three, can I add value? And, uh, can I, is there room in the rents to increase and then get a list of, uh, get a list of value ads. We have a list that's maybe has like 30 different value add plays. And I break them down into which phases of ownership I do them in. There's certain things I do. As soon as I take over property, there's certain things I do by month three, there's certain things I do six months in and 12 months in, you know, when you have a long list of ways that you could add value, it gives you a lot of tools to make uh, an investment a success, regardless of what is happening in the economy. Uh, and maybe just as a final question, Mark, like it's, it seems like you're in, 
like the idea of properties as a business um, and your approach. And I and I know you've been doing this for so long, but it seems like you live in two it's totally separate worlds, like the the creative uh, writing world and the, and the entertainment world. And then you're you're so kind of uh, in, uh, deeply embedded in in the the business world, really. Uh, like one thing that strikes me is you. It seems like you kind of were talking to a broker one one day, and you kind of fell into this uh, almost by accident, like. Growing up, uh, or as a, a young kind of aspiring writer, did you ever think uh, you'd be controlling a multi-million-dollar uh, real estate business? Uh, no, not really. You know, uh, like I said, my dream was to be a writer. I was a head in the clouds type kid, but you know, I guess I did. I remember growing up driving to high school and I lit, went to high school kind of halfway across town in Cleveland, Ohio. And there was a lot of like abandoned buildings and I would always drive past them and they kind of had that, they were old buildings. And I just would look out the window and be like, Oh man, that would be, be such a cool building. I, I had this, like this feel in this attraction to these physical structures and architecture and and i was like that would be so i could do something cool with that that abandoned building and renovate it and revitalize this block or whatever um i guess that's the only thing i can remember um being drawn to architecture and and buildings and stuff like that but no i was <laughs> i was faced i was uh always fixated on on writing and comedy and but i did you know, I did have that experience and, and in retrospect, in hindsight, in many of the hardest parts of my life, the trauma of being broke in New York, you know, created an engine within me. And I found the answer, you know, I, I found real estate. Basically, when I came out of that first duplex deal, I had decided that writing was my dream, but real estate was my must is I had to do this and build a financial future. And I would do, I, I was committed. I'm like, I'm going to do this until I'm a hundred. You know, I can, uh, I'll retire from the writing, you know, whenever, uh, whenever that happens, but I'm going to invest in real estate. It, it's something that I'm able to do until I'm a hundred and I've met hundred year old investors <laughs> and they're my idols. <laughs> Don't ever underestimate the fear of being broke. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, and and I, I I love that I love that idea of the uh, driving around looking at at old buildings because we've actually talked about this. I don't know if we've ever talked about this on the show, but um, sometimes I feel like uh, you know you see people that want to collect you know hockey cards or comic books or or beautiful cars, and I have none of that. But I do feel like properties when you drive around like. I know, you know, half of the houses in Vancouver just because I've sat and stared at them. So it's almost like that's, a, <laughs> <Right>. you know, <laughs> and, and, and wished I owned that's them. That's your hobby. Yeah, exactly. It almost becomes, yeah. uh, it, it's strange the way that works, but. Yeah, I, I loved and, and I, I loved how, so I had, when I started out, I had like a 401k at some of my first early jobs and it was kind of dull and boring and it would make like, five percent a year and it was nothing that got me excited so my eye was drawn to 
you know, what else can I buy? Like, what can I get? Can I get a nice car? But all of that evaporated as soon as I had that first experience with how powerful real estate was. I didn't want anything. I had no other hobbies. I was going to put money towards, I was going to put everything towards real estate. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's great. Um, Before we let you go, and I know know you're a really busy guy, but we have these five quick questions um, that we always end the show with. Can you hang around with that for that? Okay. Okay, perfect. So we're going to do the LA version. Uh, So favorite neighborhood in LA? Favorite neighborhood right now, either Koreatown or Westlake. Right. Favorite bar or restaurant? <laughs> favorite bar or restaurant? You know what my favorite restaurant is, and it's been closed for four months. And it's a chain, but it's just it's a place in a it's called Larchmont Village, close to where I live, where I take I have three little girls, and I take them there, and we get our breakfast on Saturday and Sunday morning. So it's it's La Pan Quotidian, right? And they're so nice. Everyone there is so nice. And uh, it's just a great place to, uh, you know, go to on the weekend. You, you think a guy is busy and then he mentions yeah, in passing that kids. he has three kids. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing something wrong here. <laughs> um, what, is, what is one book that you'd recommend uh, to our listeners? Um, one book. I don't know if I have one book. I could tell you a recent book that I read that I liked. It was called The Art of Performance by Joran DeFlander. That uh, it kind of straddles, it, I guess it applies to real estate and writing. It was just that, you know, this guy has just broken down, you know, the, the top performers and whether it's all talent or whether you can develop, you know, elite skill in any area. And it kind of is proven over and over again that you that you can develop it, and it almost argues that there that talent is a myth. Interesting. It's kind of like uh, the ten thousand hours idea. It's exactly that, and it and it just has all these case studies of like there was this guy, and I hadn't heard. Of, I guess he was kind of well known, but um, he proclaimed that he was going to raise, he was going to have a kid, and he was going to be a world chess champion <laughs> before he was even married and he went out and did exactly that <laughs> wow. his his son became like one of the best chess players ever and it was just he wanted to demonstrate that that elite skill can be taught it's not the myth that you have this magical talent or not wow yeah great great that is a great uh, i'm i'm gonna read that um, what, uh, what is a one piece of advice that you'd give your 18 year old self? My 18 year old self, I think, I think it would be, you know, I, I want to say get into real estate sooner. Cause when I was 18, you know, I hadn't thought about real estate. You know what I would tell my 18 year old self? Because I did get into real estate as soon as I had money. I didn't have money, money before before that I was broke. But what I would tell my 18 year old self is as you're going through, you know, your liberal arts education and learning Latin and, and all these things, you know, step aside and on your own time, because they don't really teach it in schools, teach yourself about finances and personal finances and how, how all that stuff works. Because 
obviously, as you guys know, it has such a huge impact on your life. And uh, I don't know why they don't uh, put more of a focus on it in schools. Right. Yeah, we we both come out of uh, the liberal arts, and uh, uh, yeah, it it was. Uh, I feel like we, in s- certain respects, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, but we've had similar trajectories in that, uh, in in kind of coming to real estate a little bit later, and and yeah, that's that's great advice. But but we all know how to how to um, do a footnote. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my footnote Chicago style <laughs> are, are impeccable. <laughs> Ask me, ask me about footnoting. <laughs> uh, last, well, no, I have a special question. But uh, what is this? Is the last of our, our five wire questions? What is, what is something that you have bought in the last year or two for under a thousand dollars that has uh, changed your life or at least improved your life in a meaningful way? What is something that I've bought for under a thousand dollars? That's something I've changed my life in a meaningful way. Changed my life. I think it was adopting apps has, has been, uh, you know, a, a changer, uh, you know, an iPhone. I guess that's not under a thousand. No, it, it, are they? Yeah. What do iPhones cost? Probably in the States. They're <laughs> like, they're like four or five grand in Canada, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but in the States, Canada, they're 700. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think they're about two grand in Canada. <laughs> uh, yeah, an iPhone. A lot of people say AirPods. I don't know if you're you're an ado- adopter of AirPods. Oh, AirPods. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do. I do. My wife gave me some AirPods uh, for the holidays and, uh, and I looked at them kind of curiously when she did, and I was like, "I don't really need these, but then I wear them. I'm wearing them right now." Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I lost mine two days ago, and I'm going through a crazy withdrawal right now. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's maddening. You can't. I can't hold a phone to my ear anymore. Right, right. It's, it's too awkward. <laughs> <laughs> And and as a final question, just uh, you're the only guy uh, we've had on the show, I think, that uh, you know lives in and uh, works in Hollywood. You mentioned that you're writing a script with Seth MacFarlane right now. Is there somebody you've you've met in your your career, like the not necessarily the biggest star, but like a person that just floored you, uh, being in the business here? <laughs> um, there's a couple of them that have kind of come out of the blue and it wasn't really like I wasn't like a a Hollywood obsessed kid uh growing up I always thought Hollywood seemed ridiculous (laughs) in the in the no-nonsense Midwest Hollywood just seemed absolutely ridiculous but but uh but there's I mean I loved meeting Ricky Gervais I'm a big fan of the the office the British office right as well as the American office but, uh, you know, I ran into him at the Emmys and he came up to a couple couple of us writers and he he was gushing about how much he loved Family Guy. And I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? Like he watches the show I write for. That was really cool. Uh, I don't know. Met Johnny Depp uh, um, and obviously work with Mila Kunis. And, and yeah, I, I what I I like and I hope most of them are like this is, is I like, you know, to meet celebrities and find out that they're down to earth, that they're not taking all this celebrity stuff too seriously. 
Right. And asking you about uh, for real estate advice. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, well, Mark, what? how can people find out more about what you're up to and then also uh, more about Quantum Capital? And, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to want to find out more about you. Sure. Um, you can reach out to me at quantumcapitalinc.com. That's just quantum capital with an INC at the end. Um, I think that's, that's our website. That's where you could connect with us. And you could also reach out to me at mark at quantumcapitalinc.com, uh, which is uh, the email address. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Mark. Uh, that, was, that was a great conversation. I think our listeners are going to learn a lot. So uh, appreciate your time. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Adam and Matt. It was great uh, talking to you guys. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Mark Henteman, executive producer on Family Guy, script writer, show writer, uh, real estate mogul, fan favorite, fan favorite, <laughs> father. I mean, this guy wears many hats and he does them all well. Uh, that I'm was a, a huge great fan. episode. I'm a huge fan of Mark nice guy Hinteman. too. Nice guy, super nice guy. I mean, he's he's a very very successful guy. A huge get for the podcast. And uh, we've we've been uh, we've been looking forward to this episode for a while. We booked this about a, a month ago or so, or and uh, we're so glad we got him and, and really generous with his time. Like, no I think kidding, we ran long today for sure. Yeah, well, no, generous with his time. And and one other thing I was thinking about. I mean, a lot of the most successful real estate investors we speak to on this show, and Mark is is no exception, have established a, a series of criteria. They're right. looking for right, right, and it's the easiest way to just go through. Does it work? Does it fit? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, and then uh, I think that's the first step to really uh, focusing in on neighborhoods and making sure you're getting properties you want when you don't have a lot of time. That's it, and and you know what, Mike, the the best part about uh, this conversation, in my opinion, was it's just someone that he's like, when I got money, I just went out and I bought something. Like I got to a certain point, and I was just. Then I would buy something. And it's just this like it kind of uh, kind of reminds me a little bit of the conversation that we had with uh, Michael Zuber where it's just like one door at a time. Yeah. Right? Like it, it's, it doesn't have to be complicated. Like what we're doing here is not rocket science. Yeah. He has a system in place but it's not like – it's not like something that most people cannot do. Exactly. Exactly. It's just, it's, it's monitoring the market. It's understanding what you want to buy. It's understanding which market you want to be in. And then it's acting continuously in a way that's disciplined and, and orderly. With purpose. That's Mark Henneman for sure. Great conversation. What else do we have today, Adam? We have so much, Matt. We have uh, obviously the Sellers Club. It's the newest club in town. Sign up for the best resources for sellers to sell for the top dollar. That's right. And these top, are act- top dollar in the shortest amount of time. These are actionable plans with checklists. Yeah. Many, like, many checklists. Steps. Like it's steps. And like the sold plan, right? Yeah. Like start on launch date. Start on launch date. This is a work yourself towards the launch date. Lays it out in very clear terms. You won't be disappointed. 
This is an exclusive club that's growing. Sign up at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And Matt, I should say right now, if you are interested in listing your property, we can run a comparative market analysis for you, tell you exactly what your home's worth, and put together a pricing strategy and a plan. Because really, these plans that we're putting out there, they're based on our own internal systems That's right. as, a, as a top producing team in Vancouver. And you might want to consider uh, reaching out sooner and later because the Fall market is about to hit. We are headed into Labor Day in about yes. a week and a half here. And uh, after that is, it's go time. It is go time. It's go time, Matt. I've never heard you say that before, but that's, uh, it seems out of character. <laughs> it's, it seems like, it's like when uh, you you told everyone at the house the other day to raise the roof. It, it didn't, <laughs> yeah, didn't, yeah, didn't, didn't I've only said banger twice in my life yeah. both times both on the times podcast on <laughs> both times recorded for eternity for eternity for your daughter to hear Matt, dad was really interested he was really really, really into cool. calling stuff bangers and thumpers uh yeah anyway it's go time it is go time yeah. after the long the weekend, daddest man sure. in the world the daddest um anyways yeah it's it's go time here on the on the podcast but okay what level else? up all right so we got that we got the sellers Whoop, there it is. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> back to our regular scheduled programming. Yeah. We got the seller's guide. We also got many more resources over at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We do. Things like the Live Wire. This is our weekly newsletter with deal of the month. So much it, jammed with information. Yes. We have stats that go out very soon after they're released by the Real Estate Board, but also stats kind of the get granular that the Real Estate Board does not produce. We right. send those out. To everyone on the live wire, we also have private client services. We do, Matt. And if you are not using PCS to search for real estate in Vancouver, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information at your fingertips. It's free. It's available on our site, Vancouver Real Estate Podcast dot com. And I'm running out of breath on account of being <laughs> some some bones in a puddle of BMI fat. Uh, is that <laughs> did, the, did the BMI have to go before the fat? I don't yeah. understand. I don't know, but you know what? You're but you're you're making some changes. I am. We all like to. I am. We all like to hear. It. I feel like we've heard about this on the podcast before. Are you suggesting that we have body complexes? I get every once in a while we get uh we get somebody who shouts out how on uh how don't take advice from the Scalina brothers. I feel like on we've fitness. now we've been pushed we've been doing Unless this for five years, and I feel like we have the same. It's a reoccurring conversation here. Yes, we've shifted to being a body positive podcast. That's right. Absolutely. If you want to talk about body positivity. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> or real estate yeah. or anything else, really, give me a call, 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also have that secret line, info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And speaking of body positivity, I'm pretty sure he's done at least 10 days in a row now of 410 calories on the elliptical on he, my fitness pal. Unbelievable. I'm, I know. I'm, I can't wait to he's see He's making some changes. He is. He's saving, yeah, he's saving his joints too. That's the big thing is uh, best joints in the game and he sells them for five bucks a pop. <laughs> <laughs> All right, have a good week, guys. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.
Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. 